and Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Papa, and I'm sitting next to physically the other host, Lisa Flicker. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Chris. So happy to have you here in New York. It's nice out in New York. We're going to the Hamptons to live it up. Um, and we just finished a great conversation with Travis Skelton, a managing partner and the head of East Coast at Acom Capital, which is a part of Acom, the, the huge global construction firm, um, the investment arm. And uh, he is a great guy. He really is a great guy. I think this has been one of the more fun podcasts. So you'll listen all the way to the end, everyone. I feel like the uh, his, his questions, his answers to the hot seat question are a lot of fun. He's worked at some really big name firms, Carlisle, Morgan Stanley, H2, HPS, and now he's at Acom. So, I mean, he's got some real great experience. And uh, yeah, he spent a lot of time with us and he's got a great personality. So please listen and as always, subscribe. We love it when you share with your friends. Uh, we also love if you could rate and review the podcast. It seems there's some algorithm in um, in uh, iTunes where if you rate it, we get higher up on the list so more people get exposure to it and can learn about the different career paths within the real estate industry. So thanks again. Have a great summer. Happy summer. <laughs>
a bunch of uh, various revenue streams that would be accretive to the public company. Secure work for Tishman or Hunt, uh, use the balance sheet to sign completion guarantees for on behalf of our partners, uh, fee, 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 come in as a co-GP and you know get part of the promote uh, by using just a little bit of the balance sheet to invest a few dollars here and there. And initially it was a good idea, um, but what happened in the first iteration was really you had general contracting persons making investment decisions to create those revenue streams. And then they realized maybe that wasn't the right idea. So we sort of reoriented the business. My partner, Warren Waxberger, who'd been there since the beginning, took over the leadership role a couple of years back. Um, he's based in Los Angeles. And we went on and raised our first, you know, traditional um, third party, you know, LP vehicle, which um, we've now fully invested. It was $500 million. And the track record, knock on wood, looks very promising. But what the public company then came to realize was they get no credit for mm. the promote dollars, right? So the management fee stream plus or minus break even year to year, they're paying salaries that are larger than maybe an engineering firm generally used to pay. Uh, and then they're not getting any sort of multiple on the promote dollars, which is really the VIG that we, that we create. So we've got a great team. We've got a great track record. And right now we're trying to think about is there, um, a better way um, to set up the business. You know, we make decisions with the C-suite of ACOM that are not always about the things that I've spent 20 years kind of being trained to make decisions about, right? IRR, multiple protection of capital. Um, and they've just got, you know, different sort of things they care about in terms of managing the balance sheet and a uh, dollar, you know, getting all your money back uh, might be more important in a given moment in time than doing the smart thing for an investment to, you know, produce a better return a year later. Is it sort of, I mean, didn't Lendlease do something similar to this? Is that the same model ish? I think it is like a sort of a co-GP model within, you know, uh, I think a lot of different firms have tried different iterations of it. Um, and I'm not sure the exact success they've all had or, you know, the, the happiness that they've had with it. But I, I can say for us, it's interesting because, there's not a single loss we've had across, you know, 25 development projects at this point in time now. Um, oh, wow. Yet and still, you can say all that and realize maybe it still isn't exactly the natural fit. What type of projects are you guys, have you guys been doing development projects? It's all build to core. The idea was um, large scale core asset classes, develop the sort of product that you know, B-Rep wants to, to buy uh, or B-Rep wants to buy or Star Starwood wants to buy, right? Whatever it is, um, the things that these guys want to put on, on the covers of their prospectus when they go out and raise, you know, additional dollars. And whether it's, you know, two years ago when cap rates were nothing or even in the, in the new world where they may be a little higher, I think our view continues to be that the lowest cap rates out there are probably going to be on the best in class, new quality, uh, product in the major markets. And is it across all asset classes or is it predominantly? Warranty? It is um, like everyone, you know, we kind of dance with the changing times. Um, we are raising capital right now for the next fund. And our, our core focus is multifamily and industrial like everybody. And you know, group, yeah, right. Group student housing in there. Um, but if you look back historically, look, we've developed a half dozen hotels, you know, we built uh, and own 
the Pendry uh, on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. We built the Four Seasons Hotel and Condos in Nashville, tallest building in Nashville, um, you know, and a handful of others. So we've we've been across the various asset classes. We're building a spec office building in Manhattan right now. There's not many oh, going wow. up. Yeah. Um, I don't what know what building's you, that? I don't know if either of you guys know, um, remember the B-Bar down on Bowery and 4th? Yeah. Uh, it was a little famous bar. They had some good outdoor space. I used to live on 2nd and 7th. Okay. So. There's a big plaque there now. It says Chris Popple. Chris Popple lived, lived here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's walking walking tours for uh, recruiters. That's right. I think, yeah, I think those got preserved, right? That's uh, it's, uh yeah. exactly. Um. Anyway, we demoed the B bar, which didn't make us a lot of friends. It was there was you know CB CB CBG CBBB and CB I'm wrong from over. Yeah, there's some old rock band like rock uh, uh venue yeah, over CBGBs, there. Yeah, CBGBs. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And we're building, it's, it's small. It's like a boutique, 110,000 square foot, sort of wedding cake office building. But it's the type of thing that we're still seeing demand for, right? Um, you know, it is fully spec. But if you, I don't know if you guys have tracked the stats, if you look at sort of the office leasing stats nationwide and break it up by vintage, um, product built, I think 2005 and newer has net a positive absorption of a couple million square feet, you know, since 2019, 2020. Mm. And every single other vintage is negative, you know, anywhere from half a million to several million square feet. Uh, and I think further within that, there's a bifurcation of what an office building is, where it is, right? And so I think the demand we're seeing in the early innings, we just had our topping off party yesterday, is a lot of foot traffic, a lot of interested groups, Every tenant can have their own sort of full floor. Once you clear the eighth floor, you've got a great view of the southern skyline down all the way down to Wall Street, and you've got a great view of the uh, midtown skyline. So it's really a pretty cool, cool project. I just spoke to a person this morning who's COO of a, uh, they're doing office, and he's he said that they're they kind of make it like a hotel. Like there's no like regular lobby. It's like you kind of walk in and they like like oh, big wooden doors and there's like, they're pumping in smells into the lobby and like, it's kind of, they make it like the kind of like a Soho house type of vibe. That sounds like kind of the, the related sort of model a little bit, I think, right. They greet you. Um, and this, we're not necessarily programming all that, but it has the same feeling that the ground floor is going to be very nice, but understated lobby. But what we did do just recently about a month ago, we made a decision to move the amenity floor down a few floors from the 11th to the 7th, which matters because if you think about how, how the building wedding cakes, it basically made the amenity floor one and a half times the size of what it would have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's one of the setback layers. You've got this great, I think probably the most balcony space any floor has, goes to the sort of common area amenity floor, a couple conference rooms, a gym, breakout sort of spaces. Um, but to your point, right, the amenity offering, you know, we increased by 50 percent, uh, like I said, about a month ago. And it's interesting when you look at these office buildings, I feel like everyone's trying to figure out how to increase occupancy. Clearly, the hotelification and the amenity space is, is the differentiator. So I can't wait to visit. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I wish we would have talked uh, a week ago. We would have invited you guys to the, the topping off party yesterday. Oh, because- that would have been awesome. Lisa, we were doing, Lisa was, at, Lisa was at the real estate games yesterday. Yes. Next year, I'm going to come to you for it. We, um, I, I co-run an, an event called the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Real Estate Games. 
and very short, a, very short title. A very short title. JDRF Real Estate Games. And we have all real estate companies come and we compete against each other in giant Jenga, basketball, dodgeball, cup stacking. It's tremendous fun. And then a very nice happy hour at the end. Amazing. Where where do you do it? Chelsea Piers. Uh, we, we would love to join. I was recently teaching my kids more advanced dodgeball. dodgeball. If, you, if you guys remember the movie, right? I was teaching yeah, my yeah. son, you know, you can dodge a wrench, you can you dodge can do a ball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do, and they dodge the wrench. That's good. Yeah, well, then he started throwing the pliers at me, and I kind of backfired <laughs> quickly. But. He's like, isn't this what you told me to do, Dad? What do right. you mean? <laughs> Lisa, you can't tell how tall she is on this on this Zoom, but she can dunk. She can dunk a basketball. Yeah. I'm kidding. Okay. Can we recruit you for our team? Lisa's like Lisa's. If she's I'm, five foot, I'm she's seven feet. Also, you know, <laughs> nice. Small but mighty. Small well, who mighty. won? D- uh, Douglas Development won. Ah, uh, Jeff Levine, huh? Yeah, they brought in some ringers. They threw in some ringers. He's, but, from, Douglas, he's from Douglaston. Yeah. My dad's from Douglaston. So I, I, I know those type of people. They, they'll, they'll do anything to win. <laughs> <laughs> so, Travis, when you were kind of in college, I see you were a finance major. Were yes. you thinking this is kind of what you wanted to do? What was the what was the career path? You know, it's funny. Um, I Finance is what I wanted to do. Um, I think at the time, like most people, I think I thought investment banking actually meant like you were an investor, right? Um, and so that was the initial idea. Came to realize through a couple of years in you know undergrad business classes, it really meant like balance sheet analysis. And it was my senior year. Job search was already ongoing. I took my first real estate class, I guess real estate finance 391, whatever it was. And it clicked all these sort of finance concepts that when I was just looking at a balance sheet, like made sense, but was kind of boring, um, became fun when you added the tangible aspect. And also, you know, I think when you get a teacher that brings an energy to the class, right. And he'd start every class with what's the cap rate, what's the cap rate, what's the cap rate. And of course, like there was no answer, right. Cause it depends. That was the point. What market are you talking about? What asset class are you talking about? What's the, the rent roll look like? But he just tried to hit home a lot of these very basic sort of real estate finance and valuation concepts. And in doing so, he made it fun and made a lot of other concepts we learned for a couple of years click. And so I signed up for a few more real estate classes for my second semester senior year and, and switched my job search to be 100 percent, you know, real estate finance uh, oriented. Yeah, because USC has a great real estate program, which is, I believe, where you went to school, right? That's right. Are you it from does. are you from Southern California? Technically speaking, I was born there. Um, but fun fact, we moved when I was like between one and two weeks old. My, my dad's an actor and he had taken a job in New York. Oh, okay. Um, my mom waited till I was born, my mom, and my sister. And so as soon as I was born, we moved out east to join him. Um, so you grew up in New York I, mainly? Yeah, I, I grew up in Larchmont through fourth grade. I was uh, at uh, Murray Avenue. Um, and then we moved to Wisconsin before fifth grade. So I, I'd say I think of Wisconsin as home. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Lisa lives in, Lar- in not in Larchmont. She lives up in Westchester. Um, where? In Scarsdale. Uh, beautiful. Where are you now? Where do you live? Uh, Upper West Side. Okay. Oh, so you're city through and through. Nice. So far. You know, the kids are kids are in school and they're happy and it's kind of got us anchored. All How right, old are your well. kids? My son is 10. He just graduated uh, 
graduated lower school. Uh, nice. Going to middle school next year. And my daughter is eight. She just wrapped up second grade. Oh, yeah. My son is, he'll be 13 next week. He just finished seventh grade yesterday. So he's, see that? I don't have a roommate. That's actually him back there. <laughs> he's over there playing video games. Uh, Happy birthday to him early. Yeah, he'll be 13. Can't believe I have a teenager. And Lisa has two who are college-ish age. Yes. Uh, and actually, you know, it's so interesting going through the process with my daughter. Now she's a freshman in college and just like the career advice. And, you know, I feel like when I'm able to talk to her about her careers, it's interesting. But it's even more interesting to me to hear the difference in, in the new generation. So... Um, you're not quite there yet, but when your kids get older, it'll be fun. You'll, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> what, what do they want to do? And is this the real impetus behind the podcast? Uh, seeking yes. Career advice yeah. for your daughter. Oh, for my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not for my daughter, but it is just generally career advice for people starting, starting out in real estate. I think it's very helpful for them to listen to people like you who've kind of made it, but it's, um, you know, when I look at the difference, I think there's a there's definitely this feeling of like the covid the kids who were in school during covid who saw that they were as successful online as they were in person and you know maybe time will will prove that it's it wasn't as successful but in the moment they felt that way and so i i see something in the younger generation when they start their jobs they just they struggle to be in the office when they're not being collaborative so I think they all recognize they want to be there to learn from their mentors. They want to be there to collaborate with their peers. And so when I look at office space, I think to myself, you know, that's kind of the the amenity space that you can think about, which is like, how do you get people in almost like on a college class basis where it's like you come in at 10 and you have some meetings and then you stay until four, but then you maybe do some stuff at home. You know, there's some kind of a hybrid. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but it feels to me like that's kind of a compromise between the two generations. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, th I think that's why this amenity space is so important because you bring them in and maybe maximize how long they stick around. Right. It's funny, you know, as we work on these projects and other than the one I mentioned, I think anything we do kind of in the near term from an office perspective will be mixed use. But you think about what that means and then you walk down, you know, through Midtown and some of these grand double and triple wide lobbies with 42 elevators, like, they seem so outdated. Right. Yeah. And especially the way people dress now, like it looks comical. <laughs> yeah. Walking through those lobbies. Right. It's, yeah. it's just weird. It's, uh, right. I, I was in a lobby of a building. I think it was Netflix and they had, their whole lobby had all these hydroponic vegetables growing. And it was, I mean, it was such a nice feeling because of that. But the thing was you, if you worked there, you could also like go downstairs and like cut yourself a salad. And I thought it was a really, really interesting concept for a lobby. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's a really cool concept. It, it's all interesting. Cause I, I, you know, I'm curious and there probably is no answer, but as you guys are doing these, you know, when we were all earlier in our careers, I mean, the biggest thing was just be there, work hard. You never say no, you get it done no matter how long it took or what hour. And that was how you built a career. It's how you became valuable to the people you worked for is how you got more opportunity. Yeah. But now like all, if that's the main piece of advice that helped a lot of us, 
that doesn't seem to necessarily be applicable today. And well, I think it might help people, but it's not what people want to hear. I today. think there's a value differential now. Like there's, um, I mean, maybe it's from seeing our parents do that and end up not being happy at the age of 60 and being like, what the hell did I just do for the last 40 years? Um, and so they're like, I, what I've been seeing, and maybe it's cause I live in California too now, not New York is that, you know, people have, they have, work is not the center of their life as much as it used to be. Um, and that they want opportunity. Maybe they'll trade some money, um, for lifestyle. Yeah. You know, and a few years ago I was shocked because there was never a time where I couldn't get someone with the right dollar amount. I mean, I always felt like if the company was willing to pay up, I could pretty much get them anyone. And now it is interesting because I'll talk to people and, I'll, and they will say to me, you know what, their mission doesn't align with my, with my mission. Their values don't align with my values. Their, you know, their political views don't. And it's just, it's interesting because I never thought of that as like career shaping. It was like, no, you go to work to make money, right? Like values, yeah. like your value is making money. Then you come home and you have your values. But I think that the either the younger generation will just wait for us to all die out or they will they will change it by voting with their feet. Yeah. And getting away or from New York was a big eye opener. I grew up in, in the New York area and always worked there and and work, you know, it's like work. It's a work centric place and you're kind of a lot of value is put on work where most of the other the rest of the country is not like that i find um it's kind of like work is just something you do it doesn't define you um and it's it's a totally different vibe i, I get and so that's why like a lot of times when we we used to i mean it's getting the people from new york are kind of moving to other places but, but we used to get mandates oh in florida where it's like oh we need somebody from new york because that means they work hard you know what i mean um when did you move there, James? Chris, uh, I met, I moved there uh, in. Uh, I moved there in 2011. So um, it was still like the Bay Area was still like a hot market back then. It's not right now, as you probably know. Are you uh, in the East Bay, or where where are you? I'm down by Palo Alto, so I'm in the okay so Silicon it's, Valley. It's still nice where you are. Yeah, it's great. Um, but I mean, it's it's all it's all nice. I mean, they, I think that the story that you know is is they're telling is like the downtown areas where people aren't in the offices. But there's, I mean, you got the rest of the city, which is like residential, where people are. It's nice. People are still living there. It's just people aren't going into the office. So the news is doing a a disservice, you would say. I've not been out in years. We're actually would, going out in October, my son and I, to a Niners game. So I'm Oh, yeah. That's, I live by this, like, the stadium's down close to me. Um, okay. So I'm going to the Giants. I'll be at the Giants-Niners game if you're going to that. Nice. No, we're going. My son was born in San Francisco, so he's uh identifies as a, you know, a San Francisco sports team Okay, guy. cool. So we're going out for the Bengals game on October 29th, maybe. Um, okay. Well, I'll be at the, I'm, I, I grew up in, yeah, I'm a Giants fan, so they're playing the Niners out here. But, uh, yeah, it's just a different, like, I mean, I would, when I first moved out to the Bay area, um, I was used to New York. So I was like at my desk at like eight 30 cause that was our hours in New York, but I didn't have any like supervising me out here. I was the only person out here and I wouldn't leave until six. Cause I was like, we had to be at our desk those hours. You know what I mean? But then I'd leave and like, everyone was gone. You know what I mean? Like no one, no one was left downtown. They all left. Um, <laughs> and so it was like, it was definitely like a way, like, where is everybody? What are they doing? Like, and it's right. just, it's just different. Um, 
but getting back to the the value thing it, it's yeah i find i don't know if it's a fat i mean it's probably because we've gotten we're very f- wealthy fat country where people are you know it's like well, I, it's 30 rock i think he said uh the uh alec Baldwin said you know our parents worked hard so my dad worked hard so I can go to college and I worked hard so my son can learn how to snowboard. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. It's, I mean, it's kind of like, and I don't know, I'm not saying one or is better than the other. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think dedicating my life to work is, is you know, when I die, no one's going to really care that much about how much money I made. Um, so it's all about impact. You know, I think that's kind of the key phrase lately impact and like people want to like, we work a lot with impact DI initiatives, uh, ESG initiatives. Like those are really to us maybe. And to a lot of older folks, those are just acronyms, but to people, they actually mean stuff to certain, you know, to junior folks, especially when we're doing searches. It's interesting because I find myself on both sides of this argument, right? Um, it took me getting into my forties and having kids that were, you know, approaching the double digits to really start thinking about those things more, right? Work shouldn't be such a focus, create better balance, more time with the kids, more, you know, all those sort of things. I'm missing too many dinners. It took to way later in life. Then at the same time, when, you know, you're trying to recruit younger people and that's the first question they ask, uh, it's frustrating because I still want the the 20 somethings, the, the early thirties to want to be here 24 seven, are we willing to be here 24 seven, even though, you know, we're having this, uh, it's personally this awakening, you know, later on in the career. Right. Because when you were younger, probably you experienced what I did, which was like, we were there all night long, but the, right. the senior partners were not there all night long. Right. So right. that was kind of like, and so I feel like on both ends, we were, we're getting a double whammy, right? We worked hard then. And now we're like, it's interesting to me to often speak to a lot of folks like yourself. And it's like, now we're doing it because we're making up for the, what the younger folks aren't doing again. <laughs> well, we've, yeah, lo- we've, we've lucked out. We found some great, like there, there are still really great talent. Like we have a lot of great people and we have a pretty loose culture. Um, you know, we don't, we're not super like you got to be in, in the office. I mean, you got to be in the office three, at least three days a week. Um, but we're not like, you have to be at your desk, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, but we do have people that work all hours and, you know, we have a, a senior associate who took a vacation yesterday, but she's in Charleston, like working on a, on a deal with us. You know what I mean? Cause it's just, just, it's what, what's required. Um, right. so there are still folks out there like that. And we, and I- we have a great team. Um, at the same time, I've been looking for an analyst for a year. And if I told you the number of people that got on the first interview, like the first is a team's interview and like a t-shirt. Like it's, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, that kind of stuff just blows my mind. I just, I'm still, I still don't understand the thought process there. Right. You're coming to an interview. You dress for an interview. I don't yeah. care. You know, if the, I tell my candidates, even if the other person's wearing a t-shirt, you should be in a suit. Exactly. Especially a first interview. If you came in and saw that we were just pretty casual, maybe I'd still personally had air the other way, but maybe. But to just presumptively presumptively get on for a sort of finance oriented role and show up in a t-shirt, I don't know. Then you just start to question like everything they say you're looking at through a different lens. Yeah. Well, I had somebody early an early Zoom that was not not a junior person who showed up to an interview in a bathrobe. I think they didn't understand with like a towel on their head. Yeah. I was like, it was like a pretty, you know, it was not a junior role. 
And I was like, Ooh, I don't, maybe they didn't understand this whole zoom thing yet. Um, <laughs> right. So, but do you, no, so getting back kind of to your career, Travis, you, you started, yeah. I mean, you've worked at some big shops. I mean, kind of, what have you, uh, what have you learned? Like when you came into it, you had like a, a finance background, like from undergrad, but what kind of, what, what are the skill sets that you've learned over the last, it looks like you've been working for 20 years now. So, um, yeah. what are some of the, I guess the first couple of years, what was the, like the things you had to pick up immediately to make you successful? The first couple of years were just to figure out what the heck everyone was talking about, right? So, <laughs> you know, every industry has its uh, terminology. And my first job, I kind of, I, I joke, I took the back door into the Carlisle Group. I was hired into this entity at the time they called CRG West. They've since taken it public uh, as a core site, publicly traded data center company, yeah, yeah. which is now private, right? And so um, I was working for people who were Carlisle employees who oversaw this entity that they had created to manage their data center properties. Um, and so from day one, there was sort of terminology around the data center industry, co-location industry, and then also just real estate. And so I think it took six months just to figure out what the heck people were talking about. But it goes back in my mind to that first thing I made, the first comment I made, which was if you were willing to put in the time and figure out what the heck was going on and find a way to be useful and a good resource to people, there's a lot of opportunity. And, you know, for me, that meant really initially was hired to manage the Argus files for a bunch of data center properties. That sounds um, like within fun. six months, got to run point on a $200 million refinance of one of Carlisle's biggest assets in their fund at the time. And within 12 months being offered a job to become a proper employee of the Carlisle group and have my boss ask me to relocate with him to Denver. Oh, wow. um, and I think all that was just from working hard and, and, you know, being useful to him. Did you go to Denver? I did. Um, so, you know, it resonated, um, Chris, what you were saying there about, you know, living in Palo Alto and kind of different vibe. I was in Denver, might've been the only person working like, you know, for a big East Coast private equity firm. And <laughs> I worked with two partners from the real estate fund. They opened a satellite office there. They moved CoreSite to Denver from Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, those guys would leave whatever, five or six, and I'd be there till like 10. By the time I would leave, everyone my age had gone for a bike ride, gone for a run, yeah. walked to the park, gone to happy hour, and now gone home. And I'm like, all right, you know, are we doing something? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely against the and the, every, and the restaurants close at eight. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you better get your uh, dinner order in early. Yeah. So how'd you get back to New York? So I went, uh, I went to Denver with Tom and, and, and David. And after a few more years with Carlisle, I'd always wanted to move to New York. It was always kind of like, you know, the big cities. And uh, I talked to them about it. We had a good relationship. And there was an opportunity to come here. This is back when Andrew Chung was really sort of the only mm -hmm. uh, real estate person for Carlisle in New York. And they'd just done that big deal on the Upper West Side. And they said, you can go, you know, to New York, work for Andrew, it'll really be kind of 100% asset management on this big project. And that's all we're doing in New York right now. You can come to DC if you want, go work for Gary Block, if you guys remember Gary. Um, but neither of those are what I wanted to do. So I kind of started talking to people. And ultimately, I went to Morgan Stanley. I think you guys probably know Peter Gordon. We had done a few deals with Peter, he recapped a couple of our data center properties. And, and he, uh, convinced me to go join him at Morgan Stanley uh, and 
know, the go-go days of the CMBS market. So I moved out to New York in 06 and worked for Peter and you know Jim Flom's group for, for a couple of years. Some superstars there. That was, that was an amazing Amazing. Like, it's like when you look at um, the Rat Pack. I yeah. feel like that's like the real estate Rat Pack. <laughs> like, it really is. Flom, Olener, Gordon, Quazy, Naila, Eric Wu. I mean, you name them. Catherine Chan. They took a really good group. You know, Ian. Um, oh, my gosh. My blank is last name. Uh, Sumer Road founder. He interned with us. Uh, Ian oh. Ross. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Was a, that was a really good group. Really good group. Someone should write a book about that. It really should. I mean, everyone has landed well. Catherine's a friend. I'm going to ask her to write a book about it. <laughs> you want to be write, in on it? I'll, I'll, I'll write the book. Okay, good. Julio, Julio was going to write the book. And then you were, you were at H2. And so you were, you were doing were you doing something a little different there? Because like the market yeah, changed, it was right? Kind of, yeah, H2 was like the, sort of the midpoint of what I'd done, right? Opportunistic real estate, private equity at Carlisle, and then sort of uh, fixed income, CMBS at Morgan Stanley. Uh, when the CMBS market imploded and, you know, the banks were all sort of kind of backpedaling, um, Spencer was growing. He had, you know, no credit losses in the GFC, which enabled him to grow in a massive way. And so he was calling to the banks and saying, like, we're growing. Who should we hire? So I got a call. I think Fry, Jonathan Fry, probably recommended me to, to Spencer. Never heard of those guys. And they invited me to come out and meet the team, whatever, and, and started you know, go through this interview process. And I was told Spencer could be difficult, but at the same time, everything he said was charming. He seemed very smart and everything they were doing made a lot of sense. And so it was a great opportunity for me to kind of pivot back to more of a principal investment role, which is how I always saw myself, um, but leveraging both what I'd done in the equity side, as well as sort of the credit side. And that, that really laid the foundation for the rest of my career, where I think in my mind, anyway, I've kind of dabbled between like high yield credit and, and real estate private equity. Um, and, you know, Spencer kind of brought that flavor of, you know, credit can be a true investment vehicle. Yeah, uh, I think to, there's a lot of people mind. that uh, could benefit from hearing that because I, I well, you know, for most a lot of my career, I've heard I want to be in the equity side. I don't want to be in the credit side. But I mean, especially. Yeah, I mean, you got to knowing both makes you just more versatile. Right. That's right. And especially if you take an opportunistic approach to it, right? Like, you know, people have approached me over the last couple of years about like building up a senior lending business. And to me, like, I don't want to do that. To me, that's, that is a little bit less exciting um, where you're just competing for the last basis point against an insurance company, what have you. Um, you can make a lot of money, but it's less exciting. But if you're doing, you know, structured credit, I mean, if you're doing mes debt, if you're doing pref equity, if what we were doing H2, you know, we were buying pools of non-performing loans. We tried to buy loans from the FDIC, from all the failed Irish banks. You know, we took over a $9 billion loan portfolio from a German entity and turned all the employees into a special servicing. You know, all that stuff is very, very interesting. You know, we tried to buy Cap Trust before it became BXMT. Uh, first time off market and the deal dikes, I think candidly, maybe they didn't want to, you know, come work there. Um, they were trying to figure out, you know, the senior management, what they wanted to do. And then the second time, I think we still might've had the best bid, but you know, they ended up Blackstone got the deal done. Um, but you know, we did a lot of really, really GGP. We were one of the biggest holders of the GGP bonds, really the Rouse bonds. We were on the Rouse, uh, the unofficial Rouse, uh, uh, steering committee. And so just, you know, credit can be really interesting if you think of it like an investor, not just a taker of terms. 
Gotcha. So do you think there's anything you've learned from those times that are applicable or going to be applicable now? I hope so. Uh, I definitely hope so. I think we will, you know, we dabble in credit with what we do right now, but our, the credit investments we make look a lot like our equity investments, right? It's going to be MES or prep equity for build decor type assets, which is a lot of what I did in my last life at HPS in our, in our joint venture with the related companies. Um, but I think even if you just put your equity hat on, which is my primary function today, I think it makes one a lot better at their job um, when you're putting documents in place, having been on the other side, because the other side, you're always looking for where is the document wrong? What can I use to my advantage? Where, where's my leverage uh, in the negotiation? And when you've thought about it that way, you think about how to make sure that doesn't happen on the other side. And you know, just since I came in here, I've cleaned up maybe two of the trickiest projects that my predecessors have struggled with for six or eight years. Uh, one multifamily project in Houston, and we had an LP, but due to various actions of theirs led to problems, we, we restructured the deal and we put our position, our equity in front of our LP. It changed our basis from something that may have been out of the money to something that's now in the money. Um, and it was very much a credit sort of approach, credit exercise of re to restructuring that I think other people kind of didn't see in the seat. And then we just did a structured exit of a project, a phase two of a development project on Flushing Queens, where we sold the 2A interest and we did a structured exit of 2B to avoid taking a big hit. Um, whereas people hadn't found a way out of it because they were worried about taking the big, you know, earnings hit. Um, and we did it with zero write-off. So, you know, whatever seat you're in, I think the skill set, if you kind of know it well, can toggle back and forth. But also I do, you know, one of the separate accounts we work with called me the other day and said, you know, are you seeing anything interesting yet from an office perspective? We want to deploy dollars with you guys on buying, whether it's loans or assets on the cheap. And we're not seeing it yet because so far the stuff that seems cheap, you know, Metropolitan Tower doesn't seem interesting, but uh, hopefully those two will converge where the stuff that's cheap might be interesting. Are you ready for the hot seat? Bring it on. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brand. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. All right. Hot seat question number one. Do you have a book and or podcast recommendation? You know, that's a good one. I am uh, I am guilty of not reading as, as much as I should. But I will tell you, when you think about kind of uh, – 
the industry, even though we're talking about real estate, I think the, the one book that I throughout my life, um, the kind of motivated part of my career path was um, Barbarian, Barbarians at the Gate. I just found it fascinating. Um, and, you know, it may be sort of a holiday, a Hollywood version, but I think, it, you know, in college, it gave a lot of insight into uh, industry and kind of paths you could take if you're successful. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't think anyone said that one. No, I don't think so either. What do you have lying next to your bed right now, if anything? Any books? Uh, nothing. My wife has a bunch. She keeps trying to get me to read, and I have my phone. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> I know. It really bad sleep hygiene. That's right. It's, um, I buy for my husband all the time. I stack them up next to his bed. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's, I make resolutions for him, too. So, you know, it's, it's all good. I have a bunch of books. Anyways, go ahead. So, tell us a little bit about your most memorable deal. Oh, okay, that's a good one. Um, it's hard to choose. We've done a lot of interesting things, but I think my most memorable deal was probably Graceland, just kind of given um, what it is and what it was. We financed 100% loan to cost uh, to build the new hotel, the guest, called the guest house at Graceland. Oh, wow. Uh, back in like 2016. But the collateral package was really cool. So we had a mortgage on the hotel. They knocked down the old hotel built this new one. It was kind of like a flea bag place. We had a mortgage on the hotel. We had a pledge of the equity in Graceland, two, thir two thirds of the equity in Graceland. And the Graceland, it's actually a very successful business. It does like $10 million a year in EBITDA. Um, and then we had a pledge of two thirds of the equity in the Elvis Presley IP and the Marilyn Monroe IP. And we created new um, TDZ, like new tax zone. The whole zone was Graceland that had various revenue streams that we had a security pledge over flow through our account. So when you looked at all of those things, you know, I think we viewed it as like 50 to 60% loan to value, uh, you know, being conservative. Um, but it was hard to structure, uh, hard to get done, difficult personalities, uh, and just a really cool deal. We ended up earning like a 13% IRR on, you know, what I thought was a pretty safe investment and a pretty cool one. That's pretty cool. I know, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on that deal alone. You really could. I mean, and we got we went down there some numerous times. They have various um, warehouses around Memphis that just house all these artifacts. Um, and we went, we got to tour one of them, and it's just like stacks and rows of stuff. And the guy who bought it, this guy Joel Weinshanker, um, part of his plan is to over time auction off a lot of that stuff, right? To just sort of buy it on his basis. Do you still own it? Um, the loan got paid off. He still owns Graceland. Um, I think he actually ended up buying Prince's house after Prince died and oh, wow. trying to do the same thing there. This guy, he made like a bunch of money in, um, not GameStop, but like the, you know, figurines, all those like movie figurines. There's like a place that sold those, he made a bunch of money doing that. And he started kind of getting into real estate and, and other sort of stuff. He's going, I'm going to buy famous dead people's houses. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't even remember how we came into it. Do you know, um, oh, what's their name? There's a public company. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking who buys up all these brands um, and they were his minority partner, uh, APG or something like that. Uh, anyways, so I don't, he maybe got connected to them and that's how the deal came together. I can't remember. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you look for when you're, when you're hiring someone and how do you sort of, is there anything that you do to kind of vet out those qualities? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's not rocket science what we do. I always say, you know, you've got to be smart enough 
you have to be interested in real estate and you have to be willing to work really hard. And I think if you can check those three boxes, someone can be very successful. Um, so it is hard to figure out how hard, someone, how hard someone's really willing to work. Um, and I don't, we don't overwork people, but you want someone who's motivated, who's happy to put in the time when it matters. And I'd say the way we try to figure these things out, we, we have an Excel test that we try to use to see if someone is sort of um, smart enough, if you will. Um, we ask them why they're into real estate. We try to figure that out. I always like to ask people if you could have any single real estate asset in the world given to you for free, what would it be and why? And just kind of hearing how people respond to that helps you see, you know, if they're actually interested in real estate or not. And then, you know, even at the junior level, we try to take someone out for drinks. So if we're kind of getting fired on the road, we'll take them out for drinks and try to put in a more casual environment and try to feel them out from a personality perspective and, and try to get a sense of if they're truly motivated and really want to do this. That's the hardest piece to pin down. Uh, but, you know, that's how we try to try to triangulate around it. Yeah. Get their guard down. Right. Exactly. But also put our guard down and try to be like honest with them. Cause you know, we have, I think we have a great culture here and we, when it's slow, we might come in late, we might leave early. And when it's not, you know, we're here and we're jamming. And so we want people to have the balance that they can have. And, you know, uh, we have, we have a lot of fun here. And so we're trying to find people who, who mesh into that. I think that's, you know, the culture piece of it is so important, right? That's like, that's everything. So I guess this is the real estate, real estate impact podcast. What do you think um, has been kind of an impact of your real estate, your work to date? Where has, has there been an, a Travis impact? You know, I think it's people. Um, I've been fortunate to work for some really good people. Um, my first, you know, my first quote unquote boss was a guy named Tom Ray. I don't know if you guys know Tom. He used to be an MD at Carlisle. Um, when they spun out the data center platform as CoreSight to get public, Tom, uh, he used to oversee that business for them. He spun out as the CEO uh, and then he ran CoreSight for, I don't know, 10 years uh, before he retired. He then went on and did his own data center business, which I think he recently sold. <laughs> so he's kind of hit it big twice. But I worked for Tom when he was sort of earlier in his career and he was, he is a great guy. And he, he used to, every Friday, and I try to do this with people I work with, he would tell me, it's my first job, he said, write down throughout the week any questions you have about anything. And every Friday, we would go to lunch at this little Italian place he liked downtown Los Angeles. We worked at the One Wilshire building. And he gave me like an hour and a half, and I could just ask him anything. And it was not judging, and it was so great. I feel like I learned so much in like two or three years working for Tom, um, in large part because of that. Um, and then I've worked for other great people. I worked for Peter Gordon for a while. And, you know, you learn different things from Pete. Pete has a, a very outgoing personality. He's more aggressive maybe than some of the people I worked for. And you kind of pick up some of that. And then I worked for Spencer Haber, who's a, a different kind of guy. And he can be challenging. But I still would say I learned a ton from Spencer um, about business building and how to kind of think beyond just the deal. Um, so, you know, I think it's people. Yeah, I love that idea with the associates. We meet with our associates once a week and, I, we, we, right. We've never said that to them. I, I actually have said it to them, oh. and I feel like probably when she's sneakily meeting with sneak them in, without, right, right. without exactly, me, exactly, exactly, <laughs> her favorite. I, I, obviously, um, but I think you can tell the best associates by the ones who come with a list of questions, and I haven't seen too many of them do it. Maybe if they're listening, they will. Um, but 
I think that that is a key. And I think for kids who are starting out in the business, my daughter started her internship and I'm like, questions, questions, questions. As a matter of fact, I was saying, saying earlier, I was telling Chris the story that she, um, she came to me and she's like, I keep trying to look up this French word, EBITDA, do you know? <laughs> like, you're not going to find it in the French to English dictionary, my yeah. love. <laughs> yeah, because it's embarrassing. Like, I remember just even starting out in recruiting, I'd be like on the phone with CFOs or whatever, and I had no idea what I was talking about trying to like decipher this crazy language of real estate and being like, I have no idea. And then, uh, you know, I never learned until I, once I started asking them, I found that generally senior people love to help people, help junior people, right? Um, and if you show yourself to be like vulnerable and don't know something, you know, they're not going to, nine times out of 10, they're not going to like make fun of you. You know what I mean? They're going to they're gonna try to help you. If you work for a good person, I think you're right because that, that, that part of you to that part of the career where a big part of your job is training and motivating and building the team. And if someone is actually interested, you want to spend time. No one wants to drag someone out to lunch and force them to ask you questions. But if someone shows an interest, I think you're right. I think senior people want to engage and they like to talk about what they've done and, and tell stories. And, you know, you can learn from that if you're actually interested. Yeah, I, that's the first time someone's brought that up. I like that. I answered the question the way you just did. So uh, I really like that. Well, Travis. Behind the scenes, this is our set. We've recorded the first part a couple weeks ago, and this is the second part today. Yep. So we really appreciate you, your patience with us and allowing us to finish the, the, the podcast. And thank you for all, all your time and your great story. Thank you, guys. It was, it was a pleasure to do this. Sorry we ran long. I think we had the IT issues last time, my fault. So glad we got to finish it. If you pierce it together, it'll look interesting because I dig in my haircut. So it'll look like a snapshot what happened in between. But. <laughs> Have a great trip. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have fun in the hamper.